You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, I could really use Current. I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode of Into the Night was made possible by the unwavering support of our dedicated Patreon donors. Their generosity allows us to delve deeper into the mysteries that await us in the dark world of Finance of Freddy's. If you are captivated by the secrets we unveil and wish to be part of our journey, we invite you to explore our Patreon page. By becoming a patron, you not only gain exclusive access to bonus content, behind-the-scenes insights, and special perks, but you also play a vital role in sustaining the future of this podcast. Visit the link provided in the description below to learn more and join our community of avid night explorers. Hello. And welcome to Shadow Scrying, the official sister series of the Into the Night podcast. As always, I am your host, Nick, and thank you for listening. In tonight's episode of Shadow Scrying, we return back to the world of the Tales from the Pizzaplex book series. And so far, I have to say that I have been quite impressed with the series so far. Finance of Freddy's books can be kind of hit and miss, and every single series has a trend of starting out very strong, but teetering in the later half of its run. For example, in the original novel trilogy, Silver Eyes was regarded as a really good reimagining of FNAF 1, and introduced multiple ideas that would be later implemented in the main game storyline. However, it would then go off the rails in the very next book, The Twisted Ones, and the final book, The Fourth Closet, openly used fan service as a crutch to wobble itself over the finish line as well as haunt the fanbase forever through the introduction of robotic doppelganger characters. Now, the more apt comparison for Tales from the Pizzaplex would, of course, be the Fazbear Frights series. Fazbear Frights had an 11 book run, 12 of you count, the bonus book included in the collector's edition. However, what is interesting about the Fazbear Frights series is that if you look back at what Scott said in the past, along with the buildup of leaks and releases. The series was clearly only meant to be a five-book run, something that became quite evident as the book series took a nosedive in quality after book five. Now, we are in book number six of Tales, a series that, so far, has been great in taking leaps to improve where its predecessor lost its balance. Sure, the epilogue storyline has the writing and narrative equivalent of spitting on the stumps of the dead trees they killed to print them, but overall, the series has made strides in improving the overall experience of the novellas. And while fans still debate on Twitter whether or not these books are canon, at the end of the day, these are just more experiences in the franchise we love. And we can all enjoy the fact that this particular corner of Finance of Freddy's is getting better and better, right? So, please keep that in mind when I tell you that Tales of the Pizzaplex, book number 6 Nexi, is, without question, my least favorite book in the series we have gotten yet in Tales. Oh, it's like what the great scholar George Lucas once said. Uh, it's like, uh, it's like poetry. It rhymes. Although, uh, I do hope it's for this momentary instance. <laughs> it's just a terrible George Lucas. Book number six in Nexi's three stories, Nexi, Drowning, and The Mimic, along with the continuing epilogue stingers at the end, suffers primarily from repeated story elements. 
and I'm not talking parallels here. I know people hate that word now. <laughs> I'm talking full stop previous novellas in both Fazbear Fright and Tales have told almost identical stories to the one found in Nexi. I'd also argue that the stories told previously with these ideas were also done much better and left a more meaningful impact that stuck with you longer after reading. Now, just because a story in the same series uses similar elements, that doesn't mean there still isn't value to them. Book number six definitely attempts to put their own creative spin on these reused ideas, but it doesn't quite achieve what it's looking to accomplish. In fact, a reoccurring theme of the book that gave me flashbacks to some of the more crazier Fazbear Fright novellas was the lack of clarity in the plot. Now, I was never confused about what was going on exactly, but while reading, I always had a feeling that I had accidentally skipped a few pages because of how it was progressing. The story has its ideas, implements them, but doesn't do any of the legwork to inform you on why these events are unfolding. The only real exception to this was the Mimic novella, which thankfully saved the book, as it was the only one that lived up to the quality that the Tales series had set for itself. In fact, I'd argue the Mimic novella is probably in my top 5 Tales stories of all time. Shocking, I know, given that last episode I made, but the problem with the Mimic was never its concept. It was always how it was implemented into the overall plot as the new big bad guy. If the Mimic was only this one-off villain in this novella, or simply located only in the books like Eleanor, I think a lot less people would find issues with the character. Now as for the book themes, I found there was one prevailing feeling that weaved its way through every single story in the collection that you should keep an eye out for while we discuss the book. Nexi really emphasizes the emotion of hopelessness, a quintessential element to every single Final Fantasy game from Scott's golden era. As you are reading these novellas, you get this eerie feeling of the characters placed in an unwinnable situation, in predicaments where they have no way of enacting a solution to their problems, and blocked by every means to escape the pain and suffering they are trapped in. Keep this in mind as we discuss each novella. Starting with the digital story itself, Nexi. Hey, Daddy, I want an Oompa Loompa. I want you to get me an Oompa Loompa right away. All right, Ruka, all right. I'll get you one before the day is out. I want an Oompa Loompa now. Can it, you Nick? Nexi, our titular story, is our Pizzaplex-focused novella for the collection. The story centers around a fourth-grade girl called Astrid. Astrid is a bit of on the outskirts of her school's social hierarchy due to her coming from a less frugal family that of blue-collared carpenters, compared to her more wealthy peers. She currently goes to a private school for gifted students, for despite her young age, she's very intelligent, and has a great interest in computers and woodworking. While Astrid always claims to feel comfortable in her own skin, she does envy those around her for their close-knit bonds. Astrid is currently a loner, an outsider to the rest of her fellow schoolmates who don't engage with her unless it's to drag her down or humiliate her for being different. But as much as she denies it and keeps a stern face throughout the ordeal, deep down she desires to have some level of love and partnership between her and her classmates. For the longest time, she didn't believe she could ever find a way to be on equal footing with them. That was until she came up with a plan. She would acquire the latest fads circling the school ground. The Fazbear Entertainment Buddytronic. Astrid has been saving up money for months to go to the Freddy Fazbear Mega Pizzaplex and create her own buddy trunk to bring home. Now, meta-narratively, the story is taking a clear shot at Bear, as well as mocking the various dumb toy fads that circle around younger generations, like fidget spinners or Fortnite. There is a deeper reason for why Astrid wants a buddy tronic beyond having something in common with the rest of her peers. The Buddytronic has a simplistic AI whose responses were a bit broader than that of simple plush toys with a speaker in their chest. They could walk and interact like small toddlers with simplistic movements and mirrored motions. If Astrid couldn't find a friend to the Buddytronic, she could at the very least fill the gap in her heart by finding a friend in the Buddytronic. She wanted to have someone she could cling to and play with all the time. She was currently living with her grandfather, whom she called her Farfar, as her father was a traveling salesman. Her mom is also out of the picture, as she desired to pursue her own career as a model than taking care of her. Side note, 
I find really weird that the story just kind of skips over this part a little bit. Like, it almost calls out the father for not wanting to support his wife's career decision when that decision literally meant putting her own self-interest over that of her family. Because she would have to leave to go, I think, to California to pursue her career. And the family couldn't afford to move given the father's current business resided in Utah. Like, the father is currently out of the picture now only because he had to become a traveling salesman to make ends meet for his daughter. Something he wouldn't have to do if the mom was in the picture helping pay the bills. I don't know. I just find it really weird that the story kind of excuses her behavior when at best both parents are kind of in the wrong here. And I say at best since the story also kind of implies the mom isn't helping support her daughter financially, nor keeps in contact with her, so... Yeah, that woman sucks. Astrid's deep-rooted desire for love is further fluctuated by the need for a maternal presence in her life now that her mom abandoned her. This desire even influenced the appearance of her bodytronic, as when she goes to the pizzaplex to construct her new friend, she had already picked out every single aspect of the design beforehand, so it would appear just like her mom used to look like in old photographs of her. However, when her birthday rolls around and she and her far far go to the pizzaplex to pick up her new playmate, something wrong is clearly afoot. The entire light system in the pizzaplex is going haywire. The Fazbear Entertainment staff member, not replaced by robots yet, is clearly panicked, scrambling around and rushing through the various hallways and checking every circuit board and system, desperately looking for a solution to the problem. When Astrid gets to the Buttertronic Boutique, the employees don't even want to run their systems due to safety concerns. But thankfully, Astrid's grandfather is able to guilt trip them by telling them it was her granddaughter's birthday, eventually wearing them down to acquiesce to them being quick about it. Astrid rushed around, excited to build her new friend, whom she already had pre-named Lexi. But when the employees run the machine to construct it, it comes out a hideous monster. A hideous monster whose programming was all wrong, as she even called herself Nexi. At first, Astrid was sickened by the creation, and the employees even told them that they could come back another time and they would build them a new one at a discount, a relatively unheard of phrase from Fazbear Entertainment. But as Astrid watched the employees and her Farfar's disgusted reaction to the animatronic abomination, she came to her own conclusion, that the doll was just just like her, on the outskirts, unwanted, undesired. She wouldn't let that happen to the doll, so she decided to take it in. Now, it didn't take long for Astrid to realize there was something peculiar about her body trying to compare to everybody else's, beyond its appearance matching that of Roadkill. Nexie was much more talkative and could extrapolate on broader subjects and topics far better than any other Buttertronic around her school. The plush pods were advanced, but they still only had a set limit of replies and sentences to general quests and questions. The Buttertronics were like an AI chatbot. Nexie talked to behave more like a flesh and blood human. These uncanny attributes of Nexie made Astrid even more of a target for harassment and bullying at her school, as Nexie's disturbing appearance quickly became the word around the hall. Astrid was able to hold herself together by reaffirming herself that if no one else loved Nexie, just like no one else loved her here, she would at least be there for Nexie. But her emotional shield began to crack ever so slightly once Nexie herself begins to share with Astrid the reason she deduced why she is hated compared to the other Buddytronics. She said it was because she was ugly, weird, and different. It even claims that being ugly could be the reason why Astrid is hated as well. Astrid tries to convince Nexie that beauty is always in the eye of the beholder, but Nexie counters by counting the ways in which society determines how to be beautiful, by explaining the attributes of being beautiful as portrayed by the mainstream media. Wait a minute. Okay, so around the 30 page mark when this part of the plot began. I literally stopped reading to pull out Fazbear Fright number one into the pit to ensure I wasn't crazy for thinking this. And yeah, I wasn't. Nexie is almost beat for beat 
and has the same exact premise of To Be Beautiful, with even some elements of Count the Ways thrown in. Oh, don't believe me? Then let me describe Nexi again and you tell me if that sounds familiar. A young girl in a school setting who is an outcast of almost all her peers due to her appearance desires to be seen as an equal by becoming beautiful. She tells herself that she is comfortable with who she is and that everyone else is simply rude and arrogant, but secretly vies for their approval and partnership. She eventually makes contact with a doll-like robot whom she takes home at a projected desire for appreciation, and the doll turns out to be a very advanced robot with human-like behaviors and emotions. The robot tells the girl it desires to help her by bringing her home with her, and the gift it wants to give that girl is the gift of beauty. Then, just for fun, let's throw some Count the Ways elements in there. Oh, excuse me, Garçon. Can I have a male character who impacts the plot by our female lead confusing his feelings for her on the side? We sure can, it's freshly baked and it comes with a sprinkle of the main character's morbid fate as an ironic allegory for what happens to her soul if you focus solely on what's on the outside of a human being rather than what's on the inside. Recycled plot elements, mmm, garçon, you spoil me. Nexi surprised me by being such a clear copy of To Be Beautiful. You know, one of the first three novella stories created for the Fazbear Fright series, and probably one of the most recognized in love stories in the FNAF book franchise as a whole. But what's even more disappointing is that it's not even that good of a copy, as it misses some key elements that made To Be Beautiful such a tragic tale through its main character, its symbolic villain, and the execution of its harsh moral lesson. Let's start with the character motive. I'm not going to pretend that Sarah, the main character from To Be Beautiful, was an amazingly written character. But her motives and struggles were communicated very well, and were relatable enough that we could understand what direction the story would be taking without fully knowing what the final destination would be. Sarah's motivation is all about being perceived as beautiful, and it all has to do with how she views herself in comparison to not just her peers, but by the high standards of models and actresses she sees in magazines and on TV. Because of Sarah's age and how easily she could be influenced by media and popularity, these are real stressors in her life. And this struggle is grounded in reality and is a real issue that teenage girls face every day in the Western world. According to a study done by Savannah Greenfield from the University of Nebraska, who did a study on beauty advertisements as it pertains to women's self-esteem, she concluded that, quote, Beauty advertising robs society of the objective perception of beauty by making real women appear inferior. Beauty products have communicated negative images focusing on one's physical shortcomings and negative self-concept. Fellow researchers Mendez and Carter argue that the manipulative and hypnotic language of advertisements leaves women in an environment of insecurity and anxiety." End quote. Sarah's struggle is simple relatable, and clear to understand as it is based on a widely known phenomenon. She is a victim of seeing herself as inferior to modern beauty standards. Her entire focus on being and her self-worth is entirely predicated on how others view her on the outside and not who she truly is on the inside. That's not to say that Astrid doesn't have relatable struggles as well, they're just a lot more complicated. Her struggle is that she is an outcast, similar to Millie from Count the Ways. The difference here is that Astrid is a poor girl who goes to a rich school, something that is always evident because she wears handmade clothes compared to everybody else's more modern attire. Okay, so being an outsider because of your financial situation is a perfectly fine story spark to motivate a character to find a change or go on a journey. But she's also a genius compared to her classmates so they also sing her out because she is smarter than them. So it's the same problem again. Okay, that's a little bit of a messier, but still comprehensible. However, Astrid also has parental issues as she is a single child whose mom abandoned her and her father is always working. And when she gets her doll, she begins to talk about being perceived as beautiful to fit in. And now she starts to second guess herself on feeling comfortable with who she is. And I think you can start to see the problems here. The issues that rely on what Astrid wants isn't ever fully understood or clarified. She wants a buddy trunk to fit in with the classmates, but at the same time also to have a surrogate for the mother that left her, in addition to also having a friend because she is a loner. 
Because of all these problems she's currently having in her life, while it isn't unrealistic that someone can have these issues all at the same time, it becomes a little harder to comprehend her motivations when she makes more and more drastic actions because we can't, you know, correlate what's the motivating factor behind them. And once Nexi enters into the plot, the problems start to mount on top of one another at a rapid pace. For example, it's never fully communicated on why Astrid doesn't return Nexi back to the Buddytronic Boutique to have the employees there check on her programming. She returned to the Peaceplex for spare parts to make Nexi look more appealing, but never bothered to check what's going on in the robot doll's head. Nexi ends up attacking people, by the way, and she doesn't even think of returning her to the Pizzaplex for maintenance, which I'm sure Fazbear Entertainment can provide for a fee. Well, of course not, because it makes much more sense for her to decide to break into the Pizzaplex in the middle of the night, find her way into the parts and service center, and build Nexi a brand new body. <laughs> no, I'm serious. Astra breaks into the Pizzaplex in the middle of the night, locates the parts and service center, and builds Nexi a new body. Wow. Okay, eat your heart out, Gregory, and I thought you had a problem with displaying the realistic intelligence levels of a child. It's the same problem of GGY all over again. The writer wants their child character to do certain actions, but then doesn't realize that a child character has to have certain limits to their capabilities, otherwise they start becoming a non-believable character. Like, Astrid is able to pickpocket an employee in almost beat for beat the same scene in GGY, again, the same method that Tony did verbatim to get into the Pizza Plex's repair center. Keep in mind, Tony at least had an excuse because the story made the precedence he did research on a story for pickpockets. And not only that, she's also going to find the repair center, a place she has never been to, to then build her own animatronic more or less through technology, even the story itself states is the most advanced robotic parts that could be found, and parts she's probably seen for the first time? She's sinking! The plot is sinking! Quick, hire the emergency writers! Look, I'm not saying that Gregory also did not do something similar to this in Secure Breach when he had to repair Glamrock Freddy. The problem is that Hand Unit was also there with him, and he basically instructed Gregory on everything he needed to do. Plus, Gregory was also only reactivating Freddy or replacing his parts with new ones. He wasn't building a new Freddy from scratch. The jumbled motives from Astrid and her desires, along with the impossible cartoon-level intelligence, just makes the character pretty unbelievable and frustrating by the end of the story. Now, the second problem is Nexi herself. Look, put simply, she is no circus baby, and the story knows it. Baby, or in the case of To Be Beautiful, Eleanor, is a sociopath who is very good at manipulating people into trusting her. Sarah had no reason not to trust her based on how Baby slash Eleanor interacted with her and what she did for the robot, which in turn made those in the know of who this character represented on edge, given they knew who Circus Baby is because we have seen her play this game of pretend before. Nexie looks like crap, and is sketchy from the moment she was created, so there is no real buildup to the betrayal at all. And if the audience can deduce rather easy from first impressions that a character is sus, it isn't believable that the point of view character wouldn't also come to that same conclusion also through first impressions. I thought maybe they were going with a toxic relationship angle, Given the story's themes as is, and the fact that Bleeding Heart in the next book installment is going to do that as its primary theme, I don't think it was supposed to come across that way. It feels like whoever wrote this knew we have seen this story before in To Be Beautiful, so they just fast forwarded through all the nuance, forgetting that even in the story in which a majority of the audience knew the monkey's paw in Circus Baby wasn't to be trusted, the work was still put in place for the character to believably make the wish. The unintended consequence of skipping all the pretense is frustration, because a reader would expect that even a child would know something is wrong with Stahl, especially if that child is presented to have above average intellect for her age. 
Regardless if the audience knows something is wrong with a character, like in To Be Beautiful, where a FNAF fan knows that Circus Baby is not to be trusted, you still have to do the legwork in writing the emotional manipulation so the character in the story doesn't suspect anything. Nexi has a few lines that get under the skin of Astrid, but the story never presents this as a main source for the motivation of Astrid's actions. And finally, there is a last problem, which is the moral themes of the story. The moral theme of Nexi is pretty self-evident. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder, but society can impact what we pronounce and perceive as beautiful. As individuals, we have our own standards and appreciations, but we can be manipulated by people and the masses to act and behave in certain ways, outwardly accepting or speaking one thing, when in reality, our heart and mind aren't capable, aren't compatible with what is considered the popular ideal. These are interesting and topical themes to draw inspiration from, but without spoiling the conclusion, it falls really flat in executing these at the finale. Now, that's not to say there aren't praises to be sung about Nexi. The character of Remy, another POV character whose perspective is interspersed throughout the story, is a young boy and hello classmate that's a crush on Astrid. He sees her as the prettiest, smartest, and most interesting girl in school. To him, she is beautiful. But because of his social standings and pressure as a member of one of the wealthiest families in town and in his school, he feels he cannot pursue even a friendly relationship with her. In turn, Astrid always views Remy as a cute boy, but one who always looks away whenever they make eye contact because he is uninterested or possibly disgusted by her, when in reality he's just too shy and anxious to admit his feelings. And as the story progresses, he is the only one to recognize that Nexi is a danger, and he sees that it is a clear threat and more capable than any other of the Buttertronics roaming the school halls. However, because of the divide in their social standings, he can't act like he notices her or sees anything strange going on around her. Remy is a fantastic addition in the story, as he doesn't paint the picture completely black and white of society, a flaw that, I'll admit, To Be Beautiful has in its themes. He is, quite unironically, a way better personification of the story's main themes than Astrid or Nexiar. It was a fun twist on this theme, as well as to showcase even those who are in the upper echelons of society standards suffer because of these barriers that are put up, and how the world would be a better place if they were simply removed. But man, that finale really spoils any goodwill I had for the story. Once again, still not spoiling the ending for it, but in the case of To Be Beautiful, Sarah becoming a pile of scrap metal and parts at the end of the story while morbid, was poetic. Sarah was so focused on how she appeared, she didn't realize the sacrifice she was making within herself to finally be seen as beautiful. She was literally selling her body, limb from limb, sacrificing who she was wholly to become this ideal version she personified would be adored and desired. In other words, and in much more cruel words, she was so narcissistic and egotistically focused on what was on the outside of a person, she couldn't see she was becoming literal garbage on the inside. It works fantastically as a metaphorical comeuppance through actions having consequences, and a tragic end to the story that works in tandem to make the impact of this harsh but important lesson as loud as it possibly can be heard. Astrid's fate? Well, it's... It's disturbing, definitely disturbing, one of the cruelest I'd argue in the entire FNAF mythos, but it falls a little flat because of the conflicting themes. Like, I get it, she needs to feel comfortable in her own skin, but it's hopeless for her to achieve that because the one person who can give her that feeling won't because of those same exact pressures society has put on Astrid or on him. But. Due to the character herself not exactly doing anything wrong in the story, like in To Be Beautiful or Count the Ways, it comes across as needlessly cruel and superficial. Especially since the ending returns back to the classic Fazbear Fright way of concluding the story, 
which is just trying to describe the most vivid gore porn ever to disturb you after how bored you were from the last 60 pages. My final rating for Nexi is a 3 out of 10, which for me ranks it as simply a bad story. It's got a great idea on paper, but it's a clear reuse of an older idea without any of the charm or intelligent writing that made it work so well to begin with. Its themes are great, but the writing of its main lead and villain are sloppy and unrealistic. The only thing to mention before moving on would be how Nexi, surprisingly, connects itself to the larger plotline revolving the mimic. What do I mean by that? Well, remember when I said the lights were flicking around the pizzaplex when Astrid got Nexi? Well, as it turns out, the events of Nexi are happening concurrently with the storyteller in the previous novella. They even mentioned the storyteller tree by name in Nexi and how it was flickering and messing up. So at the same time when Astrid was building Nexi, Mr. Burroughs, the Fazbear Entertainment CEO, was destroying the storyteller in order to escape the tree. Listen, I, I like Storyteller. I thought it was the best novella in the last book, and it's cool to see the books becoming more intertwined with each other as the series progresses. But fan service isn't enough to save a sloppy plot. Hopefully, our next novella, Drowning, can help save us. That is an ironic sentence. You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, I could really use Current. I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Hello, how are you? I am under the water. Please help me. Drowning is our second novella in the book collection, and probably has one of my favorite concepts in the book, despite its flaws. While Nexi was our pizzaplex-centered story, Drowning is our Fazbear Fright equivalent, and it, it shows. The story focuses on a teenage girl named Kara Walsh, who is currently in line with her friends Lola and Francine, to enter one of the most popular attractions in the Freddy Fazbear Mega Pizzaplex. The attraction is a VR experience, fittingly called the VR Resort, and it is supposed to have the most cutting-edge technology to truly immerse you in the virtual reality experience, including scanning your entire body to create a digital replica of yourself in the virtual world. Now, like all the attractions in the Mega Pizzaplex, it is still somewhat of a scam, as the attraction only lasts about five minutes, with a waiting period in line that feels about five hours. But for those five minutes, you are transported into an almost lifelike vacation resort, including an amusement park, a water park, or a beach. Care's group chose the amusement park against her wishes, a common occurrence in their friend group dynamic, but the experience was unlike anything she had ever had. She really could feel every aspect of this amusement park in the simulation. The wind on her cheek, 
the whiplash of the jerky motions of the roller coaster thrashing her about, the sweet aroma of desserts and candy in the air, and the sounds of bells and whistles, the various carnival games that were surrounded by the whoops and hollers of other guests at the park. Once their time runs up, Care decides she wants to go through the experience again, and gets lucky with the attendant who was operating the resort, a teenage boy named Zack, is caught closing up the attraction for the night. Kara flirts them a little bit and gets him to not only try the resort one last time, but also explain a feature she noticed but the attraction never explained, called hypertime. Hypertime is a strange feature of the resort that alters your brain's perception of reality down to a chemical level. Fazbear Entertainment understood that people would be disappointed in waiting in such a long line for such a short experience, so they included a feature that could trick your brain into thinking you are in the VR world much longer than you actually were. According to Zag, it isn't really that complicated. It is basically nothing more than an adrenaline shot to your brain that causes your neurons to fire more rapidly. But hypertime is better for marketing. Kara decides to try it out, and Zag obliges, loading Kara's preferred choice of virtual resort that her friend vetoed, the water park. After hooking her up, Zag begins to activate hypertime, but gets caught off guard by his boss on his walkie-talkie informing him that he needs to get on his lunch break immediately because he is needed to cover someone at Monty's Gator Golf. He slightly panics as he is breaking the rules and doesn't want to lose his job and hurriedly activates the resort experience. But without ever inputting how long the hypertime was supposed to be active. Without knowing any better, Kara begins to enjoy her time alone in the water park, experiencing all its chlorine glory for herself. She goes on various slides and walks through numerous doorways into alternative sections of the park, each with their own unique theme, and every water park section she entered had multiple other doorways leading to other areas of the park in this almost maze-like labyrinth of pools that seemed endless. But her time of water and sun is cut short when she notices a girl in a white decrepit cloth and long flowing black hair at the bottom of one of the pools. When Kara goes under to save her, the drowning girl's eyes open, revealing them to be completely black, with green pulsing veins crawling out of her sockets. She grabs onto Kara's leg and tries to pull her down, the bottom of the pool descending along with them, but Kara is able to break free and breach the surface again. She tries to shake it off as a weird addition to the park, but as she walks into a new area, she spots the same drowning girl at the bottom of another pool. Her eyes were open this time, and they were locked on to wherever Kara went. She never made a move to leave the pool, swim up to her, or to even breach the surface of the water. The drowning girl simply laid on the tile floor of the pools, staring up at Kara with a sinister expression on her face. Scared of her mind, Kara attempts to reach out to her physical body to activate the emergency stop. But due to Zack's accident in activating hypertime, the virtual reality doesn't let up. Even further, the more she tries to reach out, the less she feels connected to her physical body. She soon begins to realize that more of her features and senses in the virtual world are becoming more lifelike to her, to the point that she can even run out of breath in the simulation and feel a dryness in her throat and on her lips, and even physical pain. The real world and the digital world have started to... Blur. Oh, come on. Okay, so to not repeat myself as I did with Nexi, Drowning also kind of repeats another concept of a previous novella. But whereas with Nexi, I can barely say it copied from a previous book series, so hey, at least ideas aren't being repeated in the same collection. The main plot of Drowning is a direct copy and paste of Under Construction, a novella found in the first Tales book. Literally, someone activates a VR boot that isn't calibrated correctly or is broken, and they end up stuck inside the virtual world without any way of escape, as the lines between reality and fantasy blur eventually, unfolding into a nightmare scenario. That's also in addition to once again elements of Count the Ways repeating. This time with the character's emotional arc of after experiencing the horror of the story desires to, you know, correct their transgressions and be nicer and more thankful for the people she has in their life. Now, I can at the very least say, they do put a nice twist to the trapped in a VR world concept here. It's already a fun idea for a horror story, and having her being trapped with a ticking clock put a good amount of tension on the story. 
similar to count the ways the story cuts in between two points in time in the story. And in both stories, it is emphasizing the hopelessness of the situation. I'd argue Count the Ways does this a little better due to it basically reminding you as you read that whatever happens with Millie, the main character of Count the Ways, in the past is meaningless because she is going to end up trapped and facing death at the end no matter what. Drowning is also effective in taking this concept and displaying hopelessness in its own way, cutting to Kara's friends every now and then to give you a sense of just how much time is actually passing in between the hours Kara is currently feeling while in the simulation. While the main threat of being trapped in the VR world is similar to under construction, I do like that it played around with the idea a little more. Where under construction had it be a reveal that the main character was still stuck in the simulation, although the main character in that story herself was even unsure of that even into her last moments, drowning is open to the fact, and so it can play around with being trapped in a virtual reality that can shift in a whim much more regularly. Like walls and floors move around, the world can glitch creating empty rooms of black void, and the VR system even alters her memories in ways that target specific pain points in her psyche. Some of the best written scenes in the story are when Kara passes out and falls asleep while in the simulation, literally dreaming while in this VR world. It's really uncanny and unsettling seeing the simulation alter and twist her memories, almost always involving her having water slowly begin to overtake her and pull her down. In that, I get the symbolism they were going for, similar with Nexi. Kara is a daredevil in her real life, and that has a lot to do with her backstory revolving around her cousin Peggy. Peggy was her best friend, when she was a child who unfortunately suffered an accident by falling from a tree they were climbing. When she hit the ground, her head smacked into the pavement, resulting in her going into a coma for a long period of time. And when she woke up, she came to with irreversible brain damage and an inability to function without aid. Kara feels guilty for that and for always being a problem for her parents, but being a daredevil who likes to go fast and do extreme activities helps her push down the guilt, the guilt she is literally drowning in. I get the symbolism. The only problem is when you do see what actually happened with Peggy in a flashback, you learn that Kara really had no reason to blame herself. Peggy was the one who wanted to climb the tree and who fell. Kara was too nervous and too scared to do anything to help her because she was, you know, five years old when it happened. And this is where the problems come in because it's clear they're going for something similar to Count the Ways, but didn't quite understand why it worked there. The reason why Millie's arc works in Count the Ways is that it is her comeuppance in Facing Flooded Freddy is in direct response to her actions in the story. Numerous times, characters had warned her to change her ways, and numerous times she could have chosen to do the right thing or change her viewpoint for the better. But she never did. Only when facing death and seeing the face of it does she truly understand why life is so important and how ungrateful she had been. Something that even Fudge and Freddy, who again, in that story, personified death, called her out on. In comparison to Kara, nothing she really does warrants this much pain and torment. It's a similar problem of Nexi. Sure, in both Drowning and Count the Ways, both protagonists willingly put themselves in danger, but one did so out of thrill-seeking, the other did so out of anger and resentment. Her punishment doesn't fit the crime, and even then one could easily argue if she was even guilty to begin with. If anything, that should have been the arc of the story, Kara coming to grips with Peggy's accident and accepting that while things could have been different if she was a bit more confident in herself at the time, her actions are locked in and she will have to learn to live with her mistake and forgive herself for it at some point in time. Instead, she dies or is put in a coma similar to how I believe under construction ends, which leaves me questioning what was the goal of the story in the first place. Don't get me wrong. One of the scariest things in life is that there do exist evil people whose only true form of happiness can come from the discretion and destruction of other human beings, whether that be their happiness, their body, or just their lives. William Afton is that exact character, a scary creature, unworthy of the label of human being. Additionally, one of the most terrifying elements of life is the chaos of it all, 
the fact that so many things can occur and by nature that means tragedies beyond our human control will happen without any way for us to realistically put an end to them before they have done their damage. I would argue, when it comes to fiction, if you present me a character clearly going through an arc of some sort, the reader and the writer have now entered into an agreement that that arc will be concluded in some satisfactory manner by the end of the story. Not paying it off and instead subverting my expectations by having Kara die was a terrible storytelling decision. Why even bother having Kara go through this weird arc with Peggy only to attempt to make it poetic by having her die in a similar manner is a strange, abrupt, and unsatisfying way to conclude a story. It genuinely feels like the only goal was to subvert expectations, that or they had no idea how to end it by the midway point, so they used subverting expectations as a crutch to get by. Speaking of expectations being subverted, how about not explaining at all who that drowning girl was? Yeah, I'm not kidding. It is never explained. Not once. And the girl isn't something unique to carry either, as when they left the VR resort in the first time, she was able to spot the girl in a replay of another group at the water park, so... That ghost girl is specific to that area. She even walks into what I assume to be a VR replica of the house the drowning girl grew up in that was apparently flooded, at least that's what I gathered from it. Uh, the section was creepy, but I was expecting to have some sort of payoff from it, a reveal of who this drowning girl was and why she was haunting this VR system. But since we never get an explanation, it only served as a diversion. Under Construction also didn't have an explanation for the world-ending apocalypse the character was trapped in while in VR, but at the very least because the booth was broken, you can hand-weave it as the machine simply malfunctioning and giving her a nightmare scenario because of it. Drowning is way too specific and supernatural for it to just simply be a programming error, and hypertime can't be the sole issue, as the only predicament hypertime is causing is having Kara trapped within the simulation, not the paranormal elements of it. Oh, okay, better example. Count the ways again. Funtime Freddy's explanation for being present in the story is a pretty hard reach if you want to get really technical with it. Millie's grandfather is a tinkerer and collector of oddities and loves to peruse landfills for hidden treasures, and one day he encounters a white animatronic bear with pink clown makeup and takes it back with him to refurbish it. Yeah, it's a pretty hand-waved explanation. The difference between Funtime Freddy and the Drenning Ghost is how both impact the story. Funtime Freddy represents death, and how Millie encounters him is by literally trying to avoid her own problems instead of facing her shortcomings and approving herself. When she blows up in front of her family during their Christmas party, goes on a walk to cool down, and instead of facing them again and apologizing, she instead hides in her grandpa's shack inside of Funtime Freddy until they leave. The little storytelling of the presence of Funtime Freddy isn't ever explained, but the metaphorical explanation is clear. Drowning never does this with its antagonist, and instead tries to make it a story about guilt and grief, which could work if the antagonist actually did something with this, and the character actually had a conclusive arc rather than an abrupt death. If I have to give it a rating, because of its confusing nature and flawed story direction, I'm going to give my final rating for Drowning a 4 out of 10. It's a below average story for this series with some necessary improvements and changes needed to be made. If Kara had a more fleshed out arc leading to forgiving herself rather than just changing her daredevil ways, which don't really get to the root of the problem they're presenting, then I think this story would have worked out better. In addition to just answering who the drowning girl was or having her connect more to the plot, because something that important to the plot can't just go unanswered when we spend so much time on avoiding it. Let's wrap up the novella with one final story. The Mimic. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. 
Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. You're copying me! Yes. Why are you doing that? So I can win an award like you. Well, it's annoying, so stop it! Stop On our final novella, and the most important, the mimic tells us the origin story of the very same mimic that has been haunting us in the epilogues. Oh, I did not do the epilogues yet. All right, intermission. Does this have to do with anything? Tell me what's happening! Uh, honestly, w w what do you want me to say? It's the epilogue story. Y you know it's going to be the same thing. Okay, all right. I I'll try my best to give a recap. Okay. So at this point in the epilogues, only three worthless people are still alive who haven't been killed by the mimic. Lucia, Kelly, and Jace. Lucia basically wishes that Jace was dead because she likes Adrian, the guy Jace was with briefly, which is a crazy thing to think at the moment. Even more funny is that Jace is in love with Lucia, so once again, no good people in this group. They come up with a stupid plan to basically go into a room with a vent, lure the mimic there, lock it inside, and whoever is bait will go to the vents to escape. Jace decides to be bait because she wants to prove himself to Lucia, and he dies. The end. So the Mimic novella, the Mimic storyline focuses on the character of Edwin Murray, a 24-year-old Fazbear entertainment engineer who had previously appeared in Storyteller at an older age. By the time he was 8, he knew he wanted to change the world by building machines, so he spent his teen years in the early 70s learning everything he could about robotics and engineering. At the same time, Edwin also met a woman named Fiona, and the two married as soon as they graduated. Things were looking great early on in his life when Edwin got his first patent on a robotic vacuum cleaner that sold well enough to fund a good life for him and start his business right out of school. By the way, while this is not explicitly stated, this is most likely the origin of none other than Mr. Hugs for Freddy Fazbear's Pizzeria Simulator. An origin story for the robot vacuum cleaner. Mind you, an origin story no one has asked for. But God, do I love that this year? <laughs> a year after creating this robotic vacuum, Edward bought an abandoned lace factory in an old Queen Anne mansion that he and Fiona planned to restore for the family they were about to start. Unfortunately, Fiona died giving birth to their son, David, and Edward had to take time away from his work to care for him. The combination of taking care of his son as a single parent and his previous products no longer selling as well as they used to he had no other alternative but to sell his company to none other than, you guessed it, Fazbear Entertainment, who just so happened to buy him during the early 80s, quite possibly right after a certain incident involving some Springlock animatronics, although we are never told, but more than likely he was bought out during the time when Henry and William were no longer members of Fazbear Entertainment, and thus their mechanical geniuses had to be replaced and Edwin Murray was the best suitable and desperate candidate they could find. For the past year and a half, Edwin has been creating animatronic characters for Fazbear Entertainment, including updating our favorite Fazbear crew. From what I suspect to be before the missing children's incident? Now, I say updating mainly due to the fact that the book actually does state he created them, but that does contradict what we know from FFPS, which confirms Henry was the one who created the original animatronics. Therefore, it is assumed that he is either updating the suits to be a bit more modern, or he's creating his simply own versions of them. Possibly even the Rockstar animatronics we see in FFPS if Mr. Hugs is supposed to connect these two stories together. Regardless, Edwin is trying his best to keep creating these robots for Fast Entertainment, but is having difficulty doing so with his son's need for constant attention. To finally have some time to himself, to work, and to be sure David is occupied, Edwin creates a new animatronic, coding it with some sloppy C++, to simply program a robot to observe, record, and mimic the actions it sees. He ends up calling it The Mimic, as it is program file is simply titled Mimic 1, and gives it to David who is excited to have a new playmate. It's a little freaky looking, what with its big glass eyes, toy teeth, and, you know, it's just an exposed mechanical endoskeleton. But David was used to seeing robots because of his father's occupation, so he was unperturbed by his new friend's uncanny appearance. Over the next two weeks, David teaches the mimic various actions like patty cake, 
playing catch and drawing. While the mimic cannot speak, David does teach it special hand movements to communicate. Now it's no sign language, but it gets across common enough things like mimicking a bowl of ice cream and eating it to reflect your desire for, well, ice cream. Edwin kept tinkering the mimic over time, mainly to make sure David doesn't get bored too quickly with his new companion, but also because of his pride in how fast the mimic was learning. He began to believe that if he can incorporate the program into his other machines, he could produce robots even faster by just having them observe basic pre-programmed animatronic movements. Now, this strategy isn't perfect. For example, David often carries a plush tiger around, causing Mimic to curve his arm in a way that suggests he had his own. But he doesn't, so he's just curling thin air. But while Edwin, but while Edwin is working on a pirate fox, David and the Mimic work together to create a makeshift tiger plush out of lace and string. Edwin is amazed at this because he realizes the Mimic doesn't just copy. After a while of observing, it will learn how to respond, and the Mimic observes a lot because it is rarely turned off. In its current environment, it is able to watch David do various tasks like put away milk, hang up clothes, and dress up in costumes and perfectly replicate his movements and actions. Now, it only mimes these movements. It doesn't yet understand why David does them, nor the purpose of why he should repeat them. But, if you give the Mimic enough time to repeat an action, it will be able to understand the goal of these tasks. With the Mimic now in the family, life is going pretty well for the Murrays. Edwin is happy that David has a friend to finally play with, and David is over the moon with his new robotic friend. One morning, after multiple days of Edwin's life running as smoothly as it could be, David wakes his father up to play catch outside with him and the Mimic. Edwin, a bit tired from work, gets himself ready. Until he realizes, he feels a draft at the back of his neck. He looks back outside his old factory home and sees the doors to his factory home are open, and David had went outside on his own. As he walks outside, he sees David lost control of his rubber ball and was fetching to go get it, but it had landed in the middle of the road, and then... In a moment as fast as a flicker of light, but as slow and agonizing to observe as a knife to the heart, Edwin saw his son fly across the pavement from the impact of a speeding car. He rushed over to his son, who was no longer moving and was laying face first in a pool of his own blood. Edwin tried to get a hold of him, but was held back by onlookers who didn't want him to move David in case he could be saved. But Edwin already knew that his son had died and he howled and screamed as loud as he could as his tears hit the black pavement and the entire world around him began to blur together. For the next two weeks, Edwin disappeared into a fugue state. When he came out of it, he only remembered a few things, including having lived through burying his only son. Edwin tried to get back to work, but nothing felt right. Nothing felt natural anymore. As he continued working on a blue bunny endoskeleton, the mimic climbed up onto the table it was working on with his makeshift tiger, a painful reminder of David. Fighting back tears, Edwin considered turning off the mimic to block out the memory before the robot set his tiger aside and used the hand movements David taught him to ask for ice cream. Edwin snapped at the painful reminder of David and grabbed a metal rod nearby and repeatedly strike the mimic. He badly damaged his face, spine, ribcage, arm, and pincers. Eventually, Edwin ran out of strength, and his anger turned into regret as he cried. Well, goddamn. The rest of the story involves Phasma Entertainment a year after David's death, trying to recoup anything left in Edwin's factory after he abandoned it and failed to live up to his end of their contract. We follow a repair and recovery team who unfortunately discovers not only are they the second team that was sent in, but have inadvertently walked into a death trap, as the Mimic had been repaired and reactivated by the first team. The Mimic, designed to observe, record, and repeat actions, had begun to recite the very last action it can recall, Edwin Murray destroying him. The story also makes it very clear that Agony is also playing a role with the Mimic, 
The pain and loss and misery that Edwin experienced had flown from his soul and had begun to inhabit the mimic, twisting its previous lessons into something more insidious. As Team 2 discovers, the mimic killed the previous team by repeating actions he learned from David, stuffing one worker into the fridge, similar to how David put away milk, skewering another with a coat hanger and putting him in the closet, David tidying his clothes, and continuously donning costumes like David did when his father removed the shells of the robots. Okay, moving away from summary, I just have to say first off, 100% better villain and origin story than freaking Eleanor in The Stitch Wraith in Fazbear Frights. The Mimic is way more heartbreaking and utilizes a great combination of FNAF's use of supernatural magic and science fiction robotics and fuses them together in a way that creates a fun and creepy monster. The origin story also helps explain why it went haywire in the first novella epilogue when its programming was messed with, along with giving better insight into its general behavior when hunting down those stupid teens who deserve to die, be completely forgotten, and never remembered. I honestly have no complaints and only praises for the mimic. It's the right mixture of emotional storytelling, horrific tension, and unique ideas that I want to see in the finalized of Freddy's universe going forward. I loved the character of Edward Murray and David. They were written so authentically and felt like real people. Even the workers for Fazbear Entertainment were really well done. They felt genuine and three-dimensional instead of just caricatures of Fazbear Entertainment workers we see in the past. The scene where Edwin sees his son get hit and the rage he unleashes on the mimic is masterfully done. Once you start reading that part, you, you can't put the book down until the section is over. The emotions are so raw and it makes you wish better for him when you realize he will eventually meet his fate given his previous appearance in The Storyteller. As for theories and lore, this is probably the most controversial of the bundle. The main thing people attribute to the story is that it confirms that the Mimic is in fact burn trapped from Help Wanted and Security Breach respectively and William Afton is not actually alive again. Okay, so keeping in mind that last episode I made by the Mimic, hot take, I would have been okay with this if the Mimic was something that appeared after Glitch Trap and Burn Trap, as in, have whatever Glitch Trap was going to do conclude then move on to the Mimic with this as its origin story. Nothing in the books ever indicate that Mimic has any association with William beyond Glitchtrap and Burntrap. But the problem is nothing in the backstory procs it. If anything, Glitchtrap indicates a deep understanding of the psychology, mind games, and manipulation William had done with the kids, and as the books showcase, the Mimic isn't that smart. It shows no concept of understanding any emotion beyond maybe praise. That is not at all a good twist and comes across way more like a knee-jerk reaction to the criticism of William coming back. Now, I know that isn't the case, but not everyone is a mega FNAF fan like me or you. And I hate to bring this up again, but it bears repeating. No one should have to pay for $100 worth of reading material to understand a video game regardless of the game's price. The argument that the books were needed to understand the lore previously is an easily debunked counterpoint as every idea the books introduced were also things presented in the games in a way the books weren't necessary. That's all the nonsense that surrounds the Mimic novella. Because if we were talking about the actual story itself, it is near perfect. The emotions are raw, the characters are relatable, the story is heartbreaking, and the ending with the Fazbear Engineer workers creates the perfect mix of emotional horror and physical horror all while having it surround this one robot that is, is absorbing all this agony. All while having surround this one robot that is absorbing all this agony around it. If anything, the Mimic deserved better than what he got. I'll give the story an 8 out of 10. It is an amazing story, and if I were to rank it amongst the other Tales books, yeah, I would probably put it in my top 5. Now, I'm not sure if it would break my top 5 if you include Frights, but it would still be worth a read as I don't think I can give true justice to it. I highly recommend if you're going to pick up one of the books, other than if you're not, if you're not interested at all in B7. This book is worth it for the Mimic alone, so I'd say at least give this one a shot.
All right, I believe that wraps up the stories, and with that, I believe that brings us to a good stopping point for tonight's episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to stay updated, please consider subscribing, following, or sharing this podcast. It truly helps us broaden our reach. Consider following us on our Twitter at Fazbear Podcast, joining on our Discord, or supporting us on our Patreon or merch store using the various links in the description below. I have been your host, Nick. And I want to thank you all once again for listening. Have a good night, and drive home safe. mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.